Let me encourage you to turn your Bibles with me back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. You know, we have been going through the Gospel of Mark uh, periodically and the book of Joshua. I try to balance them that I can speak evangelistically in some of these messages. And we have come to Mark, chapter 10. And I quote the verse in verse 17 in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? I'm going to ask you, if you have children by you, to keep them quiet, that there would be no motion going on while I'm speaking. Now, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27, is one of many familiar accounts of the Lord's dealings with individuals. It's a passage that deserves attention because it is recorded by all three synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke there's no doubt that the repetition of this event is meant for the learning and the instruction of many in the church today if not all of us the context of the chapter shows that jesus was in the region of Judea teaching. It probably was the last two weeks of the Lord's earthly ministry. We read in verse one of Mark 10, then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. I've just read that from the New King James Version. The Lord Jesus was in his customary mode, teaching the scriptures. It is apparent that this one who came running to Jesus was impressed by the Lord's preaching and teaching. And he followed him to hear him. Would to God that some of us were like this. As I've said, this was probably the last weeks of Jesus' earthly ministry where he became more in, in, intensive in his teaching about the cross. You know, as he came near to the cross, he began to openly tell his hearers where he was going before he, he kept it low. But now he, 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 there's more intensity in the Lord's teaching. He was about to endure the cross. He was teaching about eternal life, about the kingdom of God, about the judgment that was to come. Then going back to the preceding chapter, these topics are the main subject of our Lord's discourse. For instance, in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, 
we read, and they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Now this was the second time that Jesus said these words to his disciples, but they didn't grasp what he was saying. The Lord continued in his discourse about eternity in Mark 9, 41 and 42. And we touch on this the last time. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone be hang about his neck and he was cast into the sea. You know, to be cast into the sea is a reference to eternal judgment, hell. Again, as though it was not enough, we read in verses 45 and 46 of Mark 9, And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter Paul into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Now here it has become apparent what Jesus was preaching and teaching. This was the substance of his discourse. And it, this may have been what led this one to run to Jesus, to come to him. When he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He heard the preaching of the Lord. Oh, this one is not identified by name. And none of the gospel accounts identify him by name. Matthew 19, 16 says, Behold, one came and said unto him, Luke 18, 18 said, A certain ruler asked him. Now putting this data together, this one may have been a person of great status. Probably of the cloth as Nicodemus, who was also a ruler among the governing body of Israel. We're told in Matthew 19 that he was young. Normally he's called the rich young ruler, but we don't say anywhere when he said he had great riches. But, but Jesus was teaching on the other side of the Jordan. Here in Mark, he moves to another location where we are told that many followed him. Now in this short sequence of events, three distinct groups of people followed the Lord Jesus. If you notice Mark carefully, you would see 
first the Pharisees in Mark 10, 2. The Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. The Pharisees came to trap him. They were not interested in what he was teaching. They came to trap him. The Pharisees came unto him to ask him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? The Lord asked them, what did Moses command you? What does the Bible say? Second, there were little children brought to Jesus. The disciples sought to hinder them from coming to Jesus. And he taught a principle in verse 15 of Mark 10. Verily, I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. We see the subject continuing, the kingdom of God, heaven. This is what he's speaking about. It, 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 it was in this sequence of events that the third one, this man, came to Jesus with his question, Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, this is a very important question, brethren. Um, so the first point I want to look at is the promise this one showed. The promise this one showed. We should pay careful attention to words and phrases in the Bible before we make assumptions. And I'll tell you why I am saying this. The scripture says that Jesus had gone forth into the way when there came one running and knew to him. Now, I pay close attention to that phrase, that sentence. Another translation says that Jesus was on the road. Now, I prefer the word they because it fits the narrative. This one came to Jesus while he was in the way. Now, there are only two ways in life. There's the broad way that many follow, and there's the narrow way that people will find. Normally, they would find that way. But one way is the way of Christ. The other way, the other way is our way. Normally, people will choose their way rather than the Lord's way. And that's why this phrase is very interesting to me. Many men have commented about Mark chapter 10, but many of them miss some very important things in the narrative. And that's why I try to address those things that you wouldn't read. This one showed promise. He came into the way. He did not come on his own recognizance. He did not randomly come to Jesus. As I said, he was listening to Jesus when you follow the context. But he didn't come randomly, for no one comes to Christ except the Father draws him. 
pay attention to this, John 6, 44. He did not come casually, but he came running. Some of us should take note of this. He saw a sense of urgency as he ran. These are instructions that are given to us from the scriptures. Let's not miss them. His question was one of expediency. He was following the Lord's teachings. His question is relevant to what Jesus was teaching. He was teaching on eternal matters, the kingdom of God, life after death, eternal judgment, hell. His conscience was pricked. Today you can preach till the cows come home. We are living in an era when there is so little gospel interest. This question he asks is of utmost importance. It is the ultimate question. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? You know, the Philippian jailer asks that question too. But the Lord Jesus is going to give this man a run for his money. You don't find many people asking this question. Many people today presumptuously and arrogantly assume that they have eternal life because they made a decision. Most of them do not have any biblical warrant that they are saved. The only place one can inquire about eternal life is the word of God, the scriptures, search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they, the scriptures, testify of me. John 5, 39. Many people in the church have no biblical warrant to claim eternal life. They're not reading the scriptures. Let me say something about eternal life quickly. Eternal, eternal life does not begin after one dies. It's a misconception. You do not have to wait until death for eternal life to chip in or kick in. Eternal life is not merely life in its extent, but life in its content. And listen to me carefully as I define eternal life. It is a quality of life given to the one who believes on Jesus. It is a life that differs from what one had before they were converted. It is a life that is manifested in the character of life seen at present. A life that loves the Lord Jesus. A life that loves the people of Jesus. It is a quality of life given to a person at present. You don't have to wait until he dies. So ain't no way die, go to heaven. No, you live like you are going to heaven presently on earth. And that's why I say a lot of people have no warrant that they're saved. None whatsoever. 
It is a life that is explained in the Beatitudes. That's why Jesus went through them one by one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. That's a character of life. A present life that the believer has. I've said that sometimes you fight with people in the church. You fight with them to be faithful. You know, nobody has to fight with me to be faithful, Brother Curtis. Faithfulness is a characteristic of a person with eternal life. So listen to me carefully this morning. I'm glad I get to this subject, eternal life. Because we think, oh, when I'm dead, I'm going to heaven. Are you sure about that? How about now? How are you living now? Let me go on to give this definition. Eternal life is a life that desires fellowship and communion with God. It's a character of life, a life that treasures the things of God, a life that will continue after death. That's eternal life, character and definition. But this is a good question that this man is asking about. It's a present life that God grants to his children when he translates them from the power of sin. It's a present life, Paul says, and the life I now live. I live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. Titus 3, verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation have appeared to all men, teaching them that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts that they should live soberly in this present world. Come on. Let's understand the doctrine of eternal life. Eternal life is not something in the distant future. 1 John 3, 14 and 15 gives a definition of eternal life. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer have eternal life abiding in him presently. So I believe I have belabored that doctrine somewhat because of, because of ignorance today. Here John is saying that eternal life is presently manifested in the life of the one who has become saved. They have eternal life abiding, remaining, staying in them. That's what the word abiding means. They will love the brethren. Verse John 5, 11 and 12 also defines this life. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He that hath the son have life. And he that have not the Son of God have not life. Eternal life means that one has an intimate relationship with the Son of God. 
We know him. We love him. We serve him. My friends, a lot of people in the church are kidding themselves. And I say with force and with meaning, are you one of them? Let's underscore this point. Throwing it all over the place. I'm going to heaven. I'm saved. Let us be biblical. And let us understand. So life manifested at present. So this question is a very important question that you and I should be cognizant of. But unfortunately, this question asked to Jesus by this man reflects spiritual ignorance. And I'll explain this. The question reflects ignorance, spiritual ignorance. And like Brother Jeff Adams said to us here, that we should be patient with people because we are all ignorant. But there are degrees of ignorance. We are all ignorant people. We need to be instructed by God. He was ignorant about the Savior's appearance. Notice his approach to Jesus. There came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, good master, good master. In his listening to Jesus, he only saw Jesus, the Messiah, as a good teacher. Good teacher. You're a good teacher. Ignorant about who he was. Nicodemus had a similar approach. And many today will, will only see Jesus as a good teacher. Good man. He has not become their Lord, their Savior. Another thing that reflects the spiritual ignorance of this man is his doctrine or his teaching on salvation. Like so many today in the church, Charlie, notice the question, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? The Mafia account uses the words, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? This question is under the assumption that eternal life is based on good works. What good thing? Should I be baptized? Should I be circumcised? Should, should I be sprinkled? Should I be immersed? What, what good thing should I do? No, he didn't read, or if he read it, he didn't believe it. Psalm 14, two and three. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Psalm 14, verse 3. They are all gone aside. They are all to be together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. What's he talking about? The heathen world? No. He's talking about the whole world. There is none that doeth good. This text means what it says. There is not a single person after Adam that will seek God. None. Zero. There is not one that does any good. Isaiah 64, 7. 
there is no one that is stirred in their spirit to call upon the Lord because he has hid his face from us. Our sins has caused God to turn away from us. What a state. Today, many walk through the doors of our church that show great promise. Like this fellow, he showed great promise. They show great promise. Right away, we embrace them. We look for all possibilities from them. They can often fool us of their interests. They're not interested. They can be like this one, ignorant about the Savior's appearance, ignorant about the doctrine of salvation, seeking to be right with God on their own terms. Now the way this one reflects spiritual ignorance is he was ignorant about his personal sin. The Lord dealt with him on his own terms. Notice the Lord never revealed to him who he was. He left him to believe that he was a mere man. He never, he never said to the woman, like he said to the woman at the well, I that speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. Didn't say this to this one. Just assume that Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus said unto him, listen to verses 18 and 19. Why are you calling me good? There's none good but one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. Now if you notice the, these, command, these commandments that are listed, I think there are five of them, are there? Five or six. The Lord only dealt with part of the law, half of the law. The second half of the law, man's relationship to his fellow man. Now, the Apostle Paul referred to the law in this manner, saying, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Paul was talking about the second leaf of the law. Notice verse 20. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Quite impressive. Well done. But Jesus will pull the rug from under, the, under this man's feet. He would remove the facade and show his personal sin. He showed what he was lacking. He did not love God with all of his heart. That's the foremost command. So our first point, the man came to Jesus, shows great promise. He was in the way. Jesus is the way. There are only two ways in life, the broad way, and the narrow way. He was on the narrow way. Few will find the narrow way that leads to life. But this question, as I said, 
reflects spiritual ignorance. He had no sensitivity of the Savior's presence. He called him good teacher. He did not know the teaching of salvation. He was a ruler, but he didn't know that God doesn't save by good works. Third, he was ignorant of his own sin. He thought that his performance would have earned him eternal life. My friend, are you this way? Are you this way? Are you ignorant? You shouldn't be. The Bible is open here all the time. You shouldn't be. You hear these things all the time. There are myriads of people in the church who are like this. Jesse Royal said this. We must not take salvation for granted, like putting on a jacket and walking up to church. Many people in the church are deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't take salvation for granted. We must not view this man that came to Jesus any different than how we view ourselves. We show great promise. Coming to the right place. Hearing the right words. Observe secondly with me the patience of Christ in dealing with the unconverted. The patience of Jesus in dealing with the unconverted. The Lord was patient in his teaching. He was not frustrated. He pointed the Pharisees in Mark 10, 3 to the scriptures. What did Moses command you? What does the Bible say on the matter of divorce and remarriage? Paul the Apostle in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26 says this, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, strive, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps, not certainly, perhaps, will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. The apostle went on to say, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by his will. Think of the cults that so many are in and can't get out, kneeling in bondage. Be patient. Think of the many in the church that are playing games with God. Be patient. The servant must not strive, but be patient. I will never argue you into the kingdom of God. It is impossible. I know that you are not a child of God. I know, but I will never argue you into the kingdom. I see the works of the devil not the works of Christ. But I will never argue. Patient. 
patient in exegeting the scriptures, patient in calling you away from your sins. Week after week, week after week, brethren, it's patience. As the Apostle Paul says, the love of Christ constrains us. Mark 10, 21, then Jesus beholding him, loved him. Notice this, in spite of his ignorance, Jesus beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, here's the invitation, come, take up the cross, follow me. No love is the motivational factor in evangelism and in preaching to people. The, mo the motivational factor for teaching people that are unsaved in the church is love. It is the love of Christ that constrains not the show of knowledge. The verse says that Jesus beholding him, this self-righteous sinner, love him. And by the way, it is not the word filio or eros. It is the word agapo. This is where I struggle with some conclusions that people make. We cannot say definitively what was the spiritual destiny of this one, as some have tried to say it in their books. And I know you may be listening. You cannot say it definitively where this man's destiny was. There are certain things you must leave alone. The Lord told him, he loved, looked at him and loved him. And said to him, one thing thou lackest, go thy way. Sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in him. And come, take up thy cross and follow me. What was wrong with this man is that Christ was not preeminent in his life. You know, some of us like to say, you know, I'm saved, but Jesus is not my Lord. There's the one here. This was the one thing he lacked. He had a rival God. Jesus brought his idolatry to his conscience. His treasures were on earth and not in heaven. Now, let me say something about this statement that the Lord is saying quickly. The Lord is not inferring that the way to eternal life is by relinquishing all of our earthly possessions. He's not teaching that. A person can give all their wealth to charity and still be lost. Those in organized crime, I am told, give more money to the church than I can give. Are they saved? No. 
1 Corinthians 13, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. The love here in 1 Corinthians 13 is a redemptive love. It's not a filial love. It's an agape love. It's the love of Christ. It is the love that is associated with redemption. Furthermore, there were many, many godly people in the scriptures who were wealthy, but they used their money and their possessions to the glory of God. Wealth and money never stops a person from loving and serving God. I wish I had more. But things before God equals idolatry. Look at some of our work schedules. We are not trying to correct that. We're not praying about it. I ain't buying that. You think I'm gonna buy that? Oh come God give me the time to be at church when I pray and ask him. I used to work on Sundays too. But if I'm working night, I'm here in the morning. And if I'm working morning, I'm here tonight. And some of you can remember that. You think I'm gonna buy that rubbish? They're idols in our lives. Many idols. Lord is not saying these things here that a person gotta rid themselves of everything, job and everything to follow Christ. But money never stops a person from loving and serving God. But things before God equals idolatry. We read in 3 John of Gaius, where John said, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in good health, even as your soul prospereth. You know what Gaius did, right? Gaius house the missionaries that came in that Paul sent out. And Paul says, I, I wish God give you more. So the Lord is not saying that one has to give up their possessions in order to gain eternal life. Also, Jesus is not saying that possessions can hinder one from salvation. Abraham was very rich in cattle. And God called him but Abraham never forgot his altar. Worship came first. Well, let us understand what Jesus is not saying. It is the pursuit of those things that often hinder one from eternal life. That's the problem, the pursuit of them. The things in the world that takes priority over the kingdom of God. This is the problem. This is the problem in our church where we are in pursuit of things and God is somewhere else. I warn you, this is terrible idolatry. God will judge you if he hasn't already. And God judges in some very strange ways. warning you. The 
Idolatry is a terrible sin. Idolatry was what brought the demise of Adam and Eve. God was to be central. No, no, they saw the tree, it was good for food. Desire to make one wise. And they took it. And here the offspring, you and me, follow the train. So Jesus put his finger on this man's Achilles heel. He pointed out the problem in his life. There was a hidden God in his life, earthly things. He was not following the Lord. He was following himself. He was keeping one part of the law. He, weren't, he wasn't obeying the second, the main important part, that he was to love God with all his heart. In other words, he was to be saved. So we see the promise this one showed. Two, we see the Savior's patience with the unconverted, but observe finally, the prevailing attitude of the sinner. The prevailing attitude of the sinner. All seen in this story before us. What was his attitude when the Lord put his finger on his problem? What was his attitude? Well, look at verse 22. And he was sad at that saying. I went away grieved, mad, for he had great possessions. He had great possessions. They became a hindrance, an encumbrance, weights that hindered him from running the race. He valued that which was earthly more than that which was heavenly. Is this not the problem? that is crippling our church today? Is, is this not the problem? Where people value the earthly more than the heavenly. Instead of what he had becoming an asset to the kingdom, it became an encumbrance, a stumbling stone. The Lord got a little too personal. He probably said, you're getting too personal with me now. How come you know what I got? Because I'm, I'm eternal God. Jesus was able to say, how did Jesus know that he had great possessions? Because he's God. Touch his Achilles heel. Touch where it hurt. Preach to me, but don't touch where it hurts. That's a bad preacher. There was another man like him in the Old Testament. You remember him very well. He came many miles. He crossed borders with his train, only to be told. I don't even think that the prophet went out face to face with him. He was told, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Naaman was in a half. He was mad. Why he was a leper? What is there to be mad about as a leper? 
So are you and me. Leprosy. An uncurable disease. Sin. Wonderfully, Naaman's servant whispered in his ears, Master, if he didn't tell you to do something difficult, you would have done it, right? What's so hard about going and washing? It was the equivalent to repent and believe the gospel. That's what it was. Go and wash, go and cleanse yourself. And God does this to his elect. It is the Holy Spirit that whispers in our ears. Like this servant to Naaman. You know what the preacher is saying is true. What is so hard? In turn from your sins. It's not something hard. Jesus pointed this man to the cross. That he was going to. Well you see his attitude. No one wants the cross, as I said last week. We're following the sequence. No one wants repentance. No one wants commitment. No one wants sacrifice. But they want heaven. How are you going to get it? We're staying with the script. Naaman was angry. But let us not forget that Naaman had a changed heart. So changed was his heart that Gehazi wanted to fleece him out of his money. But then he was, re he was ready to give away. So you got to be careful. With workers in the church, they don't understand grace. They look for pay. Servant impressing what to do. This one may have had the same. You do not know what happened to this man. The Bible is silent whether he became converted or not. And I'm not going to go any further with it. But I see the message that I want to bring to you. The Bible says Jesus beholding him love him and as I said this man was probably on the right path today many instead of humbly accepting the fact that Jesus is not their chief goal and pursuit get into a huff when they're called to surrender full surrender one thing no lack come there's an invitation come Take up the cross and follow me. What is that one thing that you lack today? What is the one thing you lack? I don't know. What is the one thing that is keeping you from true, unrivaled commitment to Christ? What is it? What's that one thing? The Lord knows he can put his finger on that one thing as he showed us with this individual. It's, it adds up to one word, brethren. Idolatry. 
And notice what idolatry the letter it begins with. Oh, that's the one thing. And we're living in a country, brethren. I live here. I've, lived, I've been living here for almost 50 years. I've seen a lot. Yes, I grew old here in this country. We're living in a country that if we are not careful, we would end up selling our souls for the things money can buy. We have come here for the American dream. And that is the pursuit of many Christians. They have left God somewhere in pursuit of what money can buy. Today, Black Friday attracts more people than Good Friday. Materialism has become the biggest rival in the church where the pews are empty. The one thing lacking with this man was not his immense knowledge of the Old Testament, but the one thing that was lacking was a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't have it. You, many of you don't have it. Sometimes I look at some of our children and they're like, they are mad because they're in church. I just wish you can get me out of here as quick as you can. And some adults are like that. A little rain never stopped nobody from going to work yet. And I ain't gonna thank nobody for coming to church when it rain in buckets or drops. You should be in church. You will be at work. You'll be on that aircraft. Idolatry. That's a thing. Isn't making any sport with anybody. A lot of polite idolaters. He did not understood the chief end of man was to love God and to enjoy him forever. That's the chief end. That should be my pursuit, to love God and to enjoy him forever. There was a rival deity keeping this one from eternal life. This is the greatest of all commands. You shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. That's the one he neglected. The Lord is the one that enables us to do this. No one can do this on, on their own. The Lord enables us to do it because he circumcises our hearts. He says, I will circumcise your heart and you will walk in my statutes. It's the new birth. It is salvation. He cuts away the flesh. This man showed great promise. 
he came in the way. Maybe you are on the right path this morning. We're thankful that you are in the way. The Lord is patient, long-suffering, that not any should perish, but that all come to repentance. He's patient. If he wasn't patient, I probably would have been dead already. I know that, the way I was going. He's patient. He patiently explains an exegete the scriptures to us. Week after week, he's patient. But is there a prevailing attitude in your life? I will not come. Don't stay there. Stay like that. There's only one thing, brethren, that will hinder us from eternal life. And that one thing is I, self. That's it. The gospel is clear. May God bless you. Let's pray. Amen. These familiar recorded narratives are very soul searching. Lord, may there not be another one, another thing in our lives that keep us from commitment to you unrivaled commitment. May you be our God and may we not be ashamed to be called your people. Be with us throughout this day. Help us, O oh Lord. Thank you for the opportunity. Bless your word in Jesus' name. Amen.